I've done uh, a little bit of remodeling uh, in my life. Um, I should probably restate that. I've helped with a little bit of, of remodeling. If, if I were the foreman of any sort of remodel, it wouldn't be a remodel, it would be more of a demo. Um, I've learned that as important as getting the final project and product is, uh, the process really is, is more important. And as you're getting more and more into the process, you're always assessing uh, whether or not there are more and unseen things. We, we tore up a, a, a carpet one time in our, in our house out here a number of years ago only to find that the subfloor was like sponge because of water damage. And so the project got a little bit bigger and a little more complicated than we want. So you're always looking for more and unseen things that need to be addressed. And, and back in September, we, we started this, this journey uh, to remodel the structure of our church and to discover who we are as, as a church and why we're here. And to do that, we are, um, so to speak, on a mission to, uh, to pull back the, the carpets and to analyze the foundation. Uh, we're, we're sort of spiritually taking off the sheetrock and seeing what, uh, what the studs look like and what the uh, uh, load-bearing walls look like. We're, we're spiritually taking off some of the ceiling tiles to look at the trusses and make sure that they're strong and that they are, uh, that they are able to, to hold things up. Um, this is meant to help us refocus our mission in order to ensure that the foundation is not cracked, that the uh, studs are not damaged or um, incorrectly placed, and that the, the trusses are not misaligned or, or stressed in any way. And so we spent the last six weeks examining the foundation of the church, looking at uh, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And as a, as a blanket statement, I have that foundation. Nicholas, on the next slide here, uh, the foundation being that uh, uh, the church is to know and experience and worship God the Father for purposing our salvation, God the Son for accomplishing our salvation, and the Holy Spirit for applying our salvation. And today we're going to start... Uh, phase two of this examination, and uh, uh, we're going to be examining the walls, or you might uh, say the pillars in our particular model. Uh, there are three uh, purposes, really, of the church, and they're all going to be broken up into two, uh, two ones that fit under it. So you can see here that our first purpose that we're going to look at today is that, that we exist to worship God. And there are two things uh, that, uh, that entail that, and, and uh, that is that we are to uh, worship God corporately and that we are to also uh, engage Him in, in prayer. And so this purpose of worshiping God, I would say, is the, the big purpose and perhaps the most important of the other three, other, other two that we're going to look at. Uh, as a church, our primary purpose is to gather together to exalt God alone for who he is and what he has done and to worship him according to the manner that he has prescribed in his word. So let's, let's look at uh, three different things today. The first you can see up there is that we are to worship the Lord and the Lord alone. Uh, though it's only one of the six pillars, it's probably the most important. If we were to cut out this particular pillar in our model, nothing else would really matter. It, it wouldn't matter why we gather together and have fellowship. It wouldn't matter why we evangelize the world. 
uh, if worship was not our primary purpose. It is the most important thing that we do as a church. But we don't just worship any old God. We worship the one true and living God. We worship the God of the Bible who has revealed himself to us in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, this is the God who created everything in the universe with, with the simple words of his, of his mouth. This is the God that sustains all things. This is the God uh, who uh, is sovereign and has power and he has this, this will for the way that things should be and indeed go. This is the God who provides for us our very life and our very, very breath. Our, our lives are, are in his hand. This is the God who is good in all that he does and all that he purposes. He is a good God. This is the God who has forgiven us and who has redeemed us from all of our sins and the ways that we have offended him. Uh, and because he alone is God and there is no other, he commands us to worship him and to worship him alone. So our main goal in the church is uh, to worship him. In fact, that's our purpose for every one of our lives. You exist. Every person exists in this world in order to worship our creator the God of the Scriptures. But if it were that easy, hey, we got nothing left to say. We just pack everything up and we can go home and, and uh, watch the Vikings take on the Packers and all is well, right? Well, it depends on the outcome of that game. But it's not that easy. We were all created, hardwired, if you will, for worship. But instead of Directing our, our worship in the, the proper place, we direct it towards lesser things. I mean, you feel it, and I feel it. It's like a, a moral magnet that compels us to be attracted to those things that are not God. And that's the essence of idolatry. It's, a, it's ascribing glory and, and worth in our lives to anything and everything above God. And because God is greater than anything uh, else that exists, to worship them besides him is not only idolatrous, but it's also worth condemnation. So what is the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments? You know, if you have the leadoff hitter in the, uh, the lineup of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, where he says that you shall have no other gods before me. Now, this isn't just a, a concession on God's part that there are other true gods that, uh, that uh, need to play second fiddle, but rather uh, God is recognizing that, that you and I and, and everyone, we all have this one overarching problem in our lives. We have a tendency to create gods that compete with the one and true God. And the list of these are, are endless. You know, for, for example, for some of us, it's money. For some of us, it, it might be sex or power or relationships or education or, or technology or whatever it is. How quickly will we bend the knee to the God of money? I mean, just think about in our culture in the past couple years alone, how many times has the Powerball jackpot gone over a billion dollars as a payout? 
And yet we can't help but pay our tithes to the God of chance if it means that he can pay us back so much more with a winning number. You know, the, the government and the media painted this narrative uh, uh, a couple years ago and how quickly we readjusted every aspect of our lives in order to appease this God. How many of us have ever radically reordered our lives to fit the narrative that God has given to us like we did when the pandemic came around? Not many of us. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And so serious is he about this exclusive right to be worshipped that he goes on to the second commandment and he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved or a graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven or above, heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, this isn't just a, a prohibition of uh, carving some sort of figure and worshiping a false god. The Lord is saying that we aren't even to make images that we think would uh, resemble him or what we think he looks like. We have, a, we have a tendency to be drawn into supplement our worship. And uh, we feel like our worship isn't complete or won't be accepted unless we have these, um, these specific objects or symbols. And so many times in, in our private uh, practices of faith or sometimes in our public, we, we might use paintings or, or pictures or prayer beads or... or or prayer shawls, or crosses, or flags, or statues, or whatever else we create to be used for supplementing our worship, as if they make it better. And God says that we, we ought not to do that. And why? Because he has already made the image of himself that's part of worship. You and I are made in the image of God. We're not to worship ourselves, but we are to reflect back that glory that God has. We're created male and female to reflect his, his glory to a world that ought to know what he is and uh, what he is like. We don't worship the image. It's simply the means that he has allowed for his image to be displayed. Now, we don't always do a very good job of displaying that image, do we? But we are no less the image of the one who created us. When the woman at the well met Jesus, part of their conversation was about true worship. She as a Samaritan was under the impression that true worship was to happen only on this particular mountain uh, near their geographical location, and she acknowledged that the, that, uh, the Jewish folks had uh, a little different view of that, that uh, worship could only happen in the temple, which they believed was where God's uh, presence was. And so she, she essentially asked Jesus, she said, well, what's right? I mean, if we say this and you say that, they can't both be right. And so Jesus' answer is perfect for our discussion here. He said in John chapter 4, uh, verse 23, he said, But the hour is coming and is indeed now here when true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus was saying that it's equally idolatrous to think that God would only be worshiped with the aid of uh, something external, in this case, a, a location. So get the point here of our, of our big purpose as, as a church is to worship God and him alone. And we, we come uh, and worship him knowing that we who are his image bearers have degraded him by creating idols and and placing them in our hearts. And when we come together as a, as a church family and as a church body, we come here in order to give those images and those, those idols over to him to be crushed and to be directed rightly to God. We come to worship as his image bearers, and when we do, his glory shines on us as we reflect back his, his image to him, and we reflect what the saints say in, in Revelation chapter 4, uh, verse 11, when they ascribed to him, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they created and were existed. We come to worship him because Psalm 16 tells us that in his presence there is fullness of joy. We, we, we come to him because he is worthy of praise. We come to him alone because of who he is and what he has done. So we need to worship the Lord and the Lord alone. But secondly, we should worship the, lone, uh, the Lord alone because of who he is and what he has done. True and authentic worship is about God. I love coming here on Sunday mornings. I love coming here because this is where the people that I love are. This is where I feel comfortable. This is where I feel supported and, and encouraged and taken care of. Uh, and I, I, I leave this place feeling ready to take on the challenges of Monday or maybe even an hour from now. I love being here. I love being here with you folks. But if I were to say that those were my primary motivations for coming and gathering with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I would be in danger. Because worship is not about me. It's about God. Now think about the scene in which the Holy Spirit brings, out, uh, brings Jesus out to the wilderness in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 4. And there are three unique temptations that the uh, that the devil gives to Jesus uh, that he's confronted with. One is to have self-sufficiency. The other is personal power. And the other is personal security. And you might be tempted to look at those as self-contained issues, but really we are talking about the same thing. Satan is tempting him to focus primarily on himself. And so... Uh, uh, on this, author Chuck Lawless wrote this. He said, Felt needs might be a, le a legit means to attract the unchurched, but felt needs are insufficient in fostering genuine biblical worship. One way the enemy tries to direct us away from genuine worship is to focus on our own needs. And so one thing that we need to remember here and, uh, is, is that statement right there, that the enemy invites us to focus on ourselves, but Genuine worship requires focusing on, on God. And our church needs to be radically God-centered. Why? Because of who he is. Let's dwell on this character for a moment. 
From the first words of Genesis, we get to know God as creative, powerful, and and loving. He speaks everything into existence. That's pretty powerful. Have you ever spoken anything into existence? I'd be curious if any of you have. But he's not out of that business. He still does that today with the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of his word. He is still creating new life and new souls. When we hear the word of God preached, we are renewed, we are made new in his image. So God is still using his powerful word. Further in Genesis 1, we find him to be creative. Everything around us is evidence of his his creativity. Uh, I've never met an inventor or an artist or an engineer that can make anything as complex as the world around us. The more that that I learn about uh, anatomy and physiology, the more I learn how fearfully and wonderfully we are made. You, You think about the various systems and how they work, the digestive system and the cardiovascular system and, and uh, the endocrine system. And it, it's this complex thing that none of us could ever come up with, but yet they work. Think about something like the life cycle of a tree. In, in the late spring, they, they sort of bloom and it becomes green and it's beautiful. They provide shade uh, for us in the summer. And now we're sort of at the tail end of probably the most beautiful part of it where the leaves are changing and, and they're just lovely to, to look at. And soon they're going to all fall off and it's going to start the cycle again. I mean, that, that's wonderful. God is wonderful and creative and powerful to do this. But he's also loving. Notice in, in Genesis 1 that the text describes his love for creation and how he reacts. Notice when he creates the, the ground and the sky and the sea and the fish and the birds and the bees and, and boars and ants and, I don't know, mosquitoes. I don't know what they're for, but he created them. And he doesn't say, wow, that was cool. On to the next thing. No, he looks at all these things and he says, man, that is good. And he loves his creation. And as he goes through that creation, on the sixth day, he makes the pinnacle of his creation, which are human beings. And when he creates humanity in his image, he steps back and he looks at them and he looks at how the environment is created for them. And and he says, oh man, that is very good. And it's a show of his love for the work that he has done. and, And he loves us by providing for us this world that we have. Now, the problem is in Romans chapter 1 tells us that we, his creation, we have plenty of evidence to look around and see that indeed God exists, that he's powerful, that he's loving, and yet we don't care. Psalm 8 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I don't know how you can't see God in the world around us. But yet, when it comes to us who are the pinnacle of creation, Romans 1 says that we look at all that and we say, no, that's not true. That is not true. Even if it was, there are better things out there than God. And so, here's the really miraculous part. Even though we are creatures of the dirt and deserve divine judgment, and we spend a significant amount of time and energy spitting in the face of God. He still 
loves us. And he still desires relationship with us. And he's patient with us. David in Psalm 103, as Benjamin read earlier, that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. When you look back on your life, aren't you glad God is patient? If God were not patient, I don't know if any of us would live past the age of four or five. But he is. And he loves us. And so we worship him for who his, his uh, character, who, what his characteristics are. But we also worship him for what he has done. Uh, I hope you see the Bible for what it is. Not just a, a, a collection of moralistic tales in which we can live better lives, but rather as the, the unfolding drama of God's redemption. It tells us how good God made everything and how we got ourselves into this mess and in a world of sin and brokenness and pain and, and health issues and bills and relational strife. Every single problem that you and I have in our lives is rooted in Genesis chapter 3. But yet, every single solution to that is found in the Creator, uh, in, in the Redeemer who was to come. And so, in Genesis 3, that also God promised that it won't always be like this. There is one that is going to come that's going to undo all this wrong in the world. So, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way until John the Baptist shows up on the scene, we are left seeing previews of this event and, and asking the question, is this the one to come? Is this the one to come? And they fail and they, they do all these things that show, no, that's not the one to come, but yet... John the Baptist comes and he cries out in the wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he did that, God went public with the promised one and that he had arrived. And it just wasn't some normal dude off the street that looked good and can do some cool magic tricks. This here was God himself in the flesh. This man needed to be fully God in order to do what truly needed to be done. He needed to be fully man in order to, uh, to identify with us sinful people and to work on our behalf. And so he lived a sinless life and he died unjustly on a cross and he rose three days later from the grave proclaiming his victory and showing that he had power and dominion over sin and over death. And now God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast faithful love, he puts out his hand and he says, follow me. He says, repent of your sin and trust in me. It is that word that God calls to a Romans chapter 1 heart and makes it come alive by the power of the Spirit. Why do we praise God and make worship a priority in our church? Because God the Father has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. God the Son 
has done the work to make it happen and God the Holy Spirit has made and, uh, and applied it by opening our eyes and giving us faith and compelling us to follow this great God. So yes, we need to worship the Lord and the Lord alone because of who he is and what he's done. But finally, we should worship the Lord alone according to how he wants us to worship. Take a second and answer this question to yourself. Hopefully this wakes some of you up. I can see a lot up here. I'm not picking out anybody in particular. Um, does God care how we worship him? Are we free to just make up anything that we want and slap the title of worship on it as long as our hearts are inclined to him and it feels right? Or does God have a particular uh, set of ways that we are to worship him? Well, it, it seems that the Bible is fairly clear that uh, we are not allowed to worship in any way that feels right. That God is pretty particular in how we come to him. Uh, we are to look carefully at his word and apply the principles in a, into our, the life of our worship. And, and of course, there are parameters around our personal worship, but that's another sermon for another day. Today, we're concerned primarily with what we do here in the church. And we can see that God has always been particular about how he's worshipped. Uh, think about the meticulous provisions that God gave to Israel all the way back in those latter chapters of, of the book of Exodus when he tells them to construct the, the ark and the tabernacle. Most of us skip that section when we're doing our annual Bible reading because it is really quite um, unexciting. Um, but when you read it, you say, holy cow, God was really, really, really precise with what he wanted, down to the kind of uh, uh, cloth that was to be used in everything. And so um, you think about uh, Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Well, what happens there? Uh, Cain comes and he brings a handful of vegetables to God. And Abel brings the sacrifice of the best sheep that he has. And what does God do? He rejects Cain's worship. And he accepts Abel's. So we see another certain way that God at that point wanted to be, uh, to be worshipped. Think about when uh, in Exodus 32, when Moses goes up to the, the top of the mountain and he's He's chilling with God for 40 days, and that's a long 40 days for the Israelites down in the bottom, right? And they get kind of bored thinking, what's going on? Where's Moses? They essentially think he died. He's not coming back, so now it's up to us in order to figure this out. And so Aaron thought it would be a good idea to take a bunch of gold and, and fashion it into a, a golden calf. It wasn't as if he was saying, hey, here's a different God. He was saying, this is Yahweh. This is our God. This is who we ought to worship. And it was abominable to God. And so when we gather together, what does Scripture say about how we are to worship? Well, the first thing that we, should be obvious is that we are to uh, worship together, that we are to meet and, and, and attend a church, and, and not just that, but also belong to a church and church membership. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, let us consider how to stir one another up 
uh, to love and good works. So this is what we do when we come together in fellowship. We'll come back to this in a couple weeks. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word neglect there has this connotation of not only negligence, but also uh, a conscious decision to just not go to, not go to church. And the word further has uh, these overtones of forsaking it. So part of our, our worship is actually coming together and being together. And when we come together, something amazing happens. We, we don't just invite God in. We don't say, oh God, would you please join us in our worship? But rather, God invites us into his presence. And when we do come together, Scripture tells us that we are to sing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, in the church we are to let the word of Christ dwell or live or have its abode in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so this, this here tells us that um, we need to be careful in the song choices that we employ. And I don't want to step on toes here, but most of the new songs that we sing here and have sung for the last number of years are not songs that you're going to hear on KTIS. As much as I love KTIS and, and they have some good songs, most of their music is not appropriate for corporate worship. It's good to listen to, but here at church we are to sing songs that uh, are gospel-centered, that have a number of goals that are to remind ourselves of the gospel, to, to teach each other truths about God, to, in, to encourage each other through the words of the songs around us, and to encourage those that are struggling and be encouraged if, if we are the ones struggling, and to sing back to God the glory of his worth theologically uh, in a theologically dense sense. So much of our service is uh, dedicated to singing his praises. And further, we're also here, First uh, Timothy tells us, uh, to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Paul tells Timothy that when we come together, that is what we are supposed to do. Um, we, uh, we probably don't do that as much as we should, um, but we're called to do it. And then further in 1 Timothy, Paul writes that we are to pray corporately. Notice what he says. First of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified. That is good and it's pleasing in the sight of of God our Savior. So when we gather together, we, we ought to have a significant time devoted to, to prayer, but the most important thing that we are to do when we gather together is the preaching of the Word of God. Now, I wish I had ample time to, to shed light um, scripturally on this because there's such good stuff, but for now, let's look briefly at Titus chapter 1, in which Paul says that his role of, 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 as a preacher is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So what are we to preach? We are to preach all of Scripture. 
We are not to neglect any of it. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 27, uh, Paul says to the Ephesian uh, elders, Therefore I testify you, uh, to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So we're to prefer expositional preaching in which we, we take God's word and we expound on it, which we explain what the original intent of the meaning was supposed to be. This is in contrast to a topical sermon in which we come up with ideas to talk about and then try to just search for proof texts in order to prove our point. When we come here, we are not to prove the point of a particular pastor or a particular idea. We are to find the point of the text that God wants us to have. And finally, when we come together, we're to respond. Think about 2 Chronicles chapter 16. The ark is placed into the tent, and David, he sings a song, but he's essentially um, preaching this truth about the goodness of God. And, and when he preaches at the, at the very end, it says that all the people said amen. It's a word that means truly or verily or may it be so. They responded. You see, God's word is not meant to, uh, to return to him void. And we have the responsibility to uh, respond to his word. And we respond in worship. We go from this place in love to serve the Lord and in the ways that he has called us to. And so from beginning to end, worship, when we come together, is all about God. So as we tear down some of these, uh, some of these walls and we look at the foundation to see uh, where the cracks might be, uh, we find more and more that you and I are created to worship. And we do that together. This is a great God who invites us into his story. And if we can employ worship as one of those pillars, then we will be strengthened to hold the weight of everything else that comes our way. Friends, we are putting a hedge of protection around us from the enemy through worship. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray to worship God rightly? Father, we...